Please be taking out your Bibles tonight and turning to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 12, reads as follows. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or is his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Showed him the way of understanding. And it's a beautiful passage about God's power. Weighed the mountains and the scales. Calculated the dust of the earth. He goes on in answer to these sorts of questions in verses 21 through 28 and says this of Isaiah 40. Verses 21 through 28. Haven't you known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Haven't you understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants, they're like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind, whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them by name, and by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Haven't you known, haven't you heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What a testimony to the power of our God. This morning, we began a little two-part sermon mini-series along these lines as we chronicled how many of the scientific and medical discoveries, quote unquote, that man has made over the past few centuries are really not a whole lot more, or in fact, nothing more than absolute validation that God does indeed exist and that his word both is and was perfect, flawless, and divinely inspired right from day one, period. We discussed this morning how many life-saving instructions were given by God to his people many centuries and in some cases even millennia 
before mankind had developed any ability whatsoever to even discover the hows and the whys. Instructions which could have saved countless lives had they only been heeded. We talked about all of these things this morning. Tonight, I want to continue with the second half of this little two-part sermon mini-series. I want to take a look at some of the more recent scientific discoveries of man, specifically, specifically tonight, from the book of Job. From the book of Job. And, and the reason why is because of the time frame, that incredible time frame or time span between when God first revealed it and when foolish, stubborn, God-rejecting and denying man finally got around to accepting it or acknowledging it. It's, it's amazing. So the first thing then that I want to do is, is establish an approximate time frame as to when Job lived. Now, the interesting thing about the book of Job, if you go to most commentators and such, they will tell you that we really don't know exactly when Job lived precisely. You see, the books in the Bible are not all put in, all of them are not put in exactly in chronological order. No commentator knows for sure the date of the book. Brother Eric Lyons at Apologetics Press, in answering the question, when did Job live? said the following though, he said, we can, we can get some clues as to, when did Job, as to when Job lived. He said there are clues in the book of Job that, that would seem to indicate some sort of time frame. For, in, for example, there are clues in the book, or at least one that would seem to indicate he lived after the flood, certainly. But there are other clues that would indicate he lived long before the time of Moses. And see, we see the first five books, and then we see Job way up here, and we think, well, Job lived way up here past Moses. Doesn't appear that way from clues in the book. Let me give you some examples. First off, the fact that Job lived after the flood of Noah seems probable from Job 22. Please turn there. Job chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. We, we get this idea that he certainly lived after the time of Noah's flood. Notice with me in Job 22, 15 and 16. It says, will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? So the book of Job seems to look back to the flood, so he lived after Noah. But that Job lived long before the time of Moses and probably closer to the time of Abraham around, 2000, around 2200 to 2000 BC also seems evident from the following facts. Number one, like the patriarchs of old, and if you're taking notes, I'll give you the references, like the patriarchs of old, Genesis 8:20, Genesis 12, 7 and 8, and Genesis 31, 54, Job, as the head of his family, offered up 
sacrifices to God. Job 1.5. In the book of Job, there is no mention of the Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, the law of Moses, or any of those things, which would seem to indicate that, that Moses came along later, after Job, that Job was pre-Moses, as it were. Again, because he offered up sacrifices as the head of his family. Number two, another reason that would indicate that Job lived way before Moses. Unlike Israelite, Israelite law, where the family inheritance was passed on to daughters only in the absence of sons, Numbers 27, 1 through 11, and 36, 1 through 13, unlike that, Job gave his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. Job 42, 15. So again, this would seem to indicate that Job lived way before Mosaic law. Number three. Job's material wealth was measured not in money, but in the amount of livestock he owned. Job 1.3 and 42.12, which is more characteristic, I can say that word, more characteristic of patriarchal times as well. And so as you look at these and you consider Brother Lyon's words in this last paragraph, he says, finally, that Job lived long before the time of Moses seems evident by the fact that the longevity of his life is more comparable to the long lives of the patriarchs who lived around 2200 BC. The book of Job reveals that Job lived long enough to marry, become the greatest of all the men of the East, Job 1.3, then witness his first 10 children reach at least the age of accountability, Job 1.5, and probably much greater ages, Job 1.13 and 18. Then, after suffering greatly, losing all of his children and his material wealth, God blessed Job with 10 more children and twice as much wealth, Job 42.10 through 13. The book of Job then concludes, after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days, Job 42, 10 through 17. Thus it would appear that Job lived well into his 200s or beyond. Interestingly, the Septuagint testifies that Job died at the age of 240, an age more comparable to the ancestors of Abraham as we would note from Genesis 11, 22, and 23. So when you put all these facts together, Job appears not to have lived too long after the time of Abraham, roughly. So, so get, this, get this rough idea that maybe Job lived around 2000 to 1800 BC, around that time. That's extremely important because if Job lived in that time frame, 2000 to 1800 BC, some of the things that we're going to discover from the book of Job are so ancient, but man did not discover them until just recently. There's no way Job could have known some of these things. For example, going along with a few of the things I saw in that chart, saw in that chart 
that I referenced this morning. It was in the 1500s that man discovered, quote unquote, that air has weight. Later on, in the mid-1600s, in fact, in 1644, Evangelista Torricelli described the first mercury barometer in a remarkable letter that contained the following. We live submerged at the bottom of an ocean of the element air, which by unquestioned experiments is known to have weight. So it was discovered by man that air has weight in the 1500s, in the 1600s, this gentleman is writing about it as a confirmed fact. But in Job chapter 28, verses 20 through 28, most likely which occurred like 3,500 years earlier, it talks about how God used wisdom and understanding to, amongst other things, establish a weight for the wind. three and a half millennia earlier. In the mid-1600s, man discovered that light could be split up into component colors, a prism. Split, split light into colors, okay? This is when this was quote unquote discovered. A fact that God had revealed as he questioned Job out of the whirlwind about 3,500 years or so earlier when he asked him in Job 38, 24, by what way is light diffused? Proving that light is diffused, God knew how light was diffused. He says to Job, in what way is light diffused? God knew it was. God knew how light was diffused. And yet, it wasn't until the 1600s that man figured out, hey, light can be diffused. Amazing. It was also in the mid-1600s that man discovered or came to understand that the earth is held in place by invisible forces. A fact, a fact that God had confirmed millennia earlier Turn with me in your Bibles to that passage in Job 26 in verse 7. A couple of interesting things here on this verse. That's why I've got 26.7b. Man discovered the earth is held in place by invisible forces. See, in ancient times it was believed that something was holding the earth up. Ancient man has come up with all kinds of ideas, theories about how the earth was held up. But Job 26 and verse 7, the latter part says what? He hangs the earth on nothing. Keeping in mind the time frame when Job was written, it's about 3,500 years before man came around to say, hey, God was right in Job. Amazing. And they want to tell us there is no God? Really? Wow. But it's also worthy of notice in this same text, and that's why I had you turn here. Look at the first part of this, verse 7. Look at the first part. It says, he stretches out the north over empty space, he hangs the earth on nothing. But that part about he stretches out the north over empty space, 
There's a place north of the earth, above the earth, where there's nowhere near as many stars as there are other places. There's this empty spot, as it were, this place that is devoid of stars north of the earth, a fact which Robert Kirshner did not finally discover until 1981. Look it up. I did. I checked this several times. 1981. And yet here we are, eight, 2000 to 1800 BC, and God said through his word that he'd stretched out the north over empty space. was in the 17 and 1800s, and again, there's several different people that will tell you about, but 17, 1800s, that scientists first discovered that stars move through space. They confirmed these, these stars moving back and forth and around and about. They confirmed that it does indeed happen. But turn to me in your Bibles to Job 38. In Job chapter 38, beginning at verse 31, says this. Understand that when the Bible in this text is talking about Pleiades, and it's talking about the great bear, it's talking about constellations. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or the Pleiades? In other words, can Job, because Job, remember, in this text was questioning God, and God's basically coming back. Okay, all right, you're gonna question me? Let me ask you some questions. Seems how you think you're smarter than I am. That's my bad paraphrase of, of Job 38 in the next couple of chapters. But God asked Job all these questions when Job is questioning his life and he's questioning God, and, and God asked him all these questions. He said, okay, can you bind that cluster stars? Can you make that cluster stop moving? Can you bind them up like fencing in a herd of cattle? Can you loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth, which literally means the constellations, in its season? Can, can you bring out the constellation in its season? Because God obviously can. Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Can you, can you take that, that constellation that looks like a great bear up there, can, can you take that and guide it as to where to go, showing that there's motion in the stars? When did, God, when did God say that? As compared to when man finally got around to getting a clue? Wow. It was also as recently as the 1700s that man finally discovered that plants use sunlight to manufacture food. Jan Ingenhaus, who lived from 1730 to 1799, was a Dutch scientist who is best known for showing that light is essential for photosynthesis. As a consequence, he is remembered as the person who discovered photosynthesis. But look at what God showed us more than three and a half millennia prior to that in Job 8.16. Very simple statement. No, it doesn't explain the whole process. I understand that. But God let us know in Job 8, in verse 16, that plants grow green in the sun and his branches spread out in his garden. If you want your plants to grow green, then they need to be in the sun. They need to have sunlight in order to grow. 
And like I said, no, it's not a total breakdown of the whole photosynthetic process. No, I understand that. But God was already there saying, hey, this is the way it works. Because it's, quite frankly, not the point of this text to explain photosynthesis. It's just a simple occurrence that God alluded to millennia before man got around to understanding, hey, that's the way it works. That's right. <laughs> and finally, just over the last hundred years that man has discovered there are freshwater springs in the bottom of the oceans. Turn to me to Job 38 and verse 16. Job 38, verse 16. Look what it says. Have you entered the springs of the sea? God put in the book. How would Job, think, think about this. Job lived in 3,500 years, give or take a few hundred prior to all this. How would Job have known that in the, the bottom of the sea there are springs? How, how, how would Job have discovered that? How do you think? Scuba equipment? How did he discover, how did Job know that there were springs in the bottom of the sea? Because God told him. That's how. He had no way of discovering that on his own. Nobody else had any, any way of discovering that on their own, not in that time frame. It couldn't be done, folks. It was impossible. Mm. And also, that stars give off signals. Possibly, possibly alluded to, don't know for sure, possibly in Job 38, 7. But as you put all of this together, what's the point of these two lessons today? What is the point of these two lessons today? Well, obviously, yes. That one would indeed have to be a fool just as God said not to believe. I mean, when you examine all the evidence, I mean, maybe somebody that's never heard of God might not understand, but should have some comprehension that, that this didn't all just happen. But yes, the point of the lesson is you'd have to be pretty foolish based on the evidence not to believe in the existence of God or the absolute, inerrant, timeless and divinely inspired truth of every single word in this book right here. This is it. In this book, we have everything we need to know for life here and life hereafter. Is that right? And God had it written thousands of years earlier, right? And if people would listen to this book, a lot of lives could have been saved over those years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. One more time, these men had no way of knowing these things other than divine inspiration. They couldn't even imagine some of these things when they wrote about the answers to them. So what's the point? Yeah, the point of today's lessons, as I started off with this morning, I want our young people to know, I want them to know, 
as they are daily being inundated with things like the internet that tell them their faith and their belief in God and his word, these mythic Abrahamic religions that Christianity is a myth, that, that somehow the Bible is old wives' tales or old stories or it's not true or it's not relevant today. And the very ones who are professing to be wise who are saying those things are proven the very word true that they're trying to deny. How ironic is that? I want them to know when their college professors tell them the Bible can't be true and God can't exist, that they know absolutely that it is and they've got all these reasons to back it up. But also the reason for today's two sermons is a lot more than that as well, even more than that. I wanted to get to this tie-in tonight, and that is this. It is precisely because of what I have presented you with today precisely because of the facts I have presented today as they relate to our physical world, that we must apply what we have learned to our spirituality and our eternal lives. That's the point. If God can be totally trusted to tell us things thousands of years beforehand that we need to listen to to save our earthly lives, which I've proven all day today, he can, right? And has then we need to make sure that we understand that what he wrote thousands of years ago will also save our eternal lives. That's the point. God can be trusted with the physical. We may not understand. When people lived in a certain time frame, they may not have understood everything that God said. But it's not about understanding it. They didn't need to understand bacteria. They didn't need to have scuba outfits to go to the ocean floor. All they needed to do was trust God, even if they didn't understand it. It's about obedience. It's about trust. It's not about understanding why. But if that's true in the physical world, it's also true in the spiritual world. And that's the whole point of Psalm 19. Please turn there. Psalm 19. Watch closely as what I've just said is proven by the scriptures. Psalm 19, Psalm of David. You remember how this morning I went through a list of, of godly men and said they knew and they understood that God existed? Remember that list? David was one of them. Look what David writes in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Sounds a lot like what Paul wrote in Romans chapter one how what God created declares his glory. It shows his handiwork. God did this. Verse 2, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What on earth is he talking about? Simply this, the heavens that God created, the handiwork, of, of his hand, the firmament, there's no place on earth that you can't see the heavens, is his point. The heavens and the firmament testifies day and night. It reveals that God is there. There's no place on earth where you can't see the firmament that declares his majesty. And this 
testament to God's power is on all over the whole earth. You can't miss it. All you got to do is look up. He continues. In them, middle of verse 4, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. What's the point? Here's the point. Since you have been on earth, sun rises in the east, sets in the west, hasn't it? Have you been able to change that? Has any generation before you been able to change that? Has God kept the sun making its circuit ever since creation week, has he? East away, you count on it. There's no question about it. Now, there's clouds, you can't see it, but it's still there. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to see it to know it's there. Something may cloud it, but you know it's still there. You can't change it, you can't mess with it. It's gonna happen. This, the sun is, this is part of, that, part of that testament to God's power in the heavens. Sun comes up, runs its course, goes on its circuit, again, the earth is round, one end to the other, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now, now watch this. He's made a point. You can't change it. God set it up this way. You can't touch it. You can't change it. You can't alter it. You can't mess with it. It's going to happen that way every day. You with me? Yeah? And then it looks like the psalmist, David, takes an absolute, looks like, <laughs> it looks like some of my sermons sometimes when I start them over here and I get going on them and I wait a day and I come back to them to write something totally different, right? And, and I gotta, gotta really go over the first part to make sure that I, I'm in line with the second part starting out. It looks like David almost messed up and starts a whole new idea, but he didn't. Because look what he goes from. He goes from the physical, the locked in, that which God has done, that which is unchangeable in the physical realm into the spiritual realm. The law. Wait a minute, David, you were just talking about the earth and the heavens and whoa, dude, slow down. Don't go. Yeah, that was his whole point. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord, the word of God, is just as sure, just as dependable, just as locked on, just as, just as unchangeable as the sun rising in the east, setting in the west every day. It's the same thing. That, that's his point. The statutes, verse 8, of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey to the honeycomb and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Listen, if you can count on the earth continuing to rotate the way God set it up, if you can count on the fact that God keeps the firmament in place, that by his might and power, not one star is missing. If you can count on that in the physical world, you can count on this in the spiritual world. His law is perfect. It is flawless. By keeping God's word, you will preserve. There's great reward in keeping God's word. That is as dependable and locked down as the fact that the earth and the sun are going to stay in the same place by his power. You see the connection? 
His judgments are sweet. They're right. They've always been right. They always will be right. They're perfect. Don't mess with them any more than you can mess with the sun because you can't really. People say, well, you know, that you can make the word of God say anything you want to. No, you can't. You can either accept it as it's written or you can deny it as written, but you can't make it say what you want it to say. It's right the way it's written. Anything else is wrong. It's really that simple. In keeping them, there's great reward. What I want for us to understand is this, especially those of you who may hear this lesson online at some point who might not be members of the Lord's Church. God, thousands of years in advance of man discovering it, gave out a lot of information that would have saved countless lives. Lives that were lost due to leprosy, labor fever, black plague, a lot of other things. God gave instructions long before those plagues that would have saved lives. And here's the connection. God has given us instructions thousands of years ago that will save our eternal lives as well. Those instructions that God gave thousands of years ago to save our eternal lives, the same way as his instructions would have saved physical ones, are capsulized as follows. It was just about 6,500 years ago, give or take a couple hundred, one way or the other. About 6,500 years ago, shortly after creating the world, that God promised in his perfect and flawless word to send a savior to crush Satan's power over us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It was approximately 2,500 years ago that God said in his perfect and flawless word that he would set up a kingdom during the days of the Roman Empire that would never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 2, verses 40 through 44. And it was just a tad over 2,000 years ago, during the rule of the Roman Empire on this earth, that God sent that Savior to establish and to reign over a spiritual kingdom. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33, Matthew 16, 18 through 19. God sent him to do that just as he had promised throughout the Old Testament to do, particularly in Daniel chapter 2. And it was just a tad under 2,000 years ago, in 33 AD, when that kingdom was established on earth, when Peter opened the doors of the church, when the kingdom on earth, the church of our Lord, was established. When Peter opened the doors to the church by preaching the first gospel sermon and telling us what the terms of entrance into that kingdom were, he told those that day who had heard his word and believed in Jesus, and they said, Peter and the other apostles, what must we do? 
And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the main message of today's two lessons should become instantly clear to everybody. Just as God's word, if listened to, would have saved thousands of lives in the physical realm, if people had just paid attention to what God said, same is true in the spiritual. How many eternal lives will be lost because people refuse to discover what's in God's word, instructions that he gave us 2,000 years ago on how to be saved. How many eternal lives will be lost for the same reason? See the connection? God told us what we needed to do to be saved. People that want to cast that off and say, well, you know, baptism doesn't really save you. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to be part of a church. You can be part of any church as long as you believe something. It's all God cares. That's not the instructions of 2,000 years ago, just like they may have thought, well, in order to avoid the Black Plague, you've got to do this. No, you've got to do what God told you to do in the first place in order not to have this problem. And people on Judgment Day, they're, they're not going to have a chance to discover in God's word those 2,000-year-old instructions on how to be saved, but they're just as relevant as the day they were given and the day they were written. Let me ask you a question. I've already answered it, but I'm going to ask you anyway, and then I'm going to close. Are God's instructions from 2,000 years ago and Peter on the day of Pentecost just as relevant today as they were the day Peter spoke them, yes or no? Absolutely. And they're the only instructions that will save your eternal life, period. You can, you can go anywhere else you want to go, but you're not going to find anything to save your eternal life. We must listen to what God said in order to save our eternal lives the same way that people should have over the centuries listened to God to save their physical lives. And so, the invitation tonight is this. Have you done what God told you to do to save your eternal soul? Have you heard that Jesus is the Savior? Believed that he is the Savior? You're willing to confess that he is the Savior? You're willing to repent and turn to God? Willing to be baptized specifically for the forgiveness of your sins? and then to live a life faithful in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I know those instructions are really old, but they're just as new as this moment. And they'll save your eternal life. Did you hear them? Have you done? Are you still doing them, the part about living faithfully? Tonight, if you'd be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you're somebody who needs the prayers of the church to be more faithful, please, please, don't ever stop listening to God's word. If there's something you need to do because you're not right the way that God wants you to be, do it. Just do it. Eternity will be more than worth it. If you have a need, please come to the front as we stand and sing.